Before our scripture reading, we'll turn once more to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we will read from verses 15 through the end. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him, with Jesus, heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they, with all, they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has, who has ears to hear, let him hear. Dear congregation, are you totally committed to following Jesus Christ? Last week in the parable of the Great Supper, we heard how the invitation went out to, to all 
Indiscriminately, the invitation went out to invite all to the Great Supper, where they were called to this salvation, where God has prepared a full salvation for sinners, and that He provides everything. And He says, you are invited to come and even compelled and urged to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Then we also saw in verse 18 how, how our attachment to the things in this world prohibit or prevents us from coming to Christ. It says the invited guests were not interested to come to the banquet. They had other priorities, other things in this life that they held more important, that they loved more. But then we also read in verse 25, and this is where our text begins, that great multitudes went with him. Great multitudes followed Jesus. Many who had been invited from the highways and the hedges and from the streets and the lanes of the city came to follow Christ. They, they heard him gladly. But a great following is also not always a clear indication of the growth, the true growth of the kingdom of God. In some countries you can hear of millions of people coming or certain numbers of people making the decision for Christ, and yet, not every fish in a net, Jesus says, is good. And not everything that grows in the field is wheat. The Lord Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows our hearts. And He makes clear that believing on Him is not simply just something to add to our life. It's not just something to take to improve our life on earth for now. But to come to Christ through the gospel is at the same time to let go of everything else. Because if Christ is all and in all, then like Paul, we must count everything else as loss to gain Christ, to gain His righteousness. In Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus had a parable, the parable of the pearl of great price. And the example there is when the merchant saw this one pearl of great price, he sold everything he had so that he could buy this one pearl. And when you see the grace of God, the righteousness of Christ that is provided for sinners, then you're willing to part with everything in this world, everything in this world and everything of herself, to gain life through Him alone. And that is what Jesus says here when he turns to the crowd of followers. And in verse 33, he says, Whoever of you who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So this morning, our theme is total commitment to Christ. And the full passage here from verses 25 through 35 is, is one section, but it's too much to cover in one sermon, so I'll be doing the first half today and the next half next Lord's Day. And the two thoughts that we'll consider today are the first two in your bulletin, the cost and the ultimatum. And we'll consider the rest of the other two next week. And so first, the cost of total commitment to Christ. What is the cost of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus? Because he says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. 
Here's the cost. You notice in this list, he does not even mention lands or houses or possessions. We all know that possessions and earthly things are, are disposable. That in times of crisis, in times of war, or times of natural disaster, you can think of Turkey, our possessions are destroyed, taken away. But what matters most is the lives of loved ones, the families. We will part with, with all our earthly possessions for the well-being of our families. And so Jesus here, he's really putting his finger on, on the two areas of our life that are most sensitive. Our family relations, our natural affections toward others, and ourself. Our natural uh, desire and instinct for self-preservation, for our preserving our own life, our own self, our own reputation. And so by identifying these most sensitive areas in our life, he's implying it'll cost everything. These relations, they really stand for a whole. It means the cost is real, and the cost is extreme. A simple example is a couple of years ago, a pastor in the Netherlands, he was simply teaching a marriage class in his congregation. And he started receiving assaults. People were attacking his home and vandalizing his cars, and he raised this in his class the next time. And he said, this is what's happening. And then someone took him to court, and he was charged guilty, found guilty of stirring up the people against the transgender community, falsely accused, labeled as hate speech, because he was upholding the biblical truth. And so here Jesus says, he uses strong language, and we'll see why. He says we must hate our families and hate our own life. So we need to understand what does that mean. And first of all, we We'll say what it does not mean, because Scripture cannot contradict each other, itself. And God commands us to love one another, even to love our enemies. The summary of God's law is to love God above all and our neighbors herself. In Ephesians 5, God says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. So hate cannot mean to despise or to hate someone in, in that sense of when we think of the term. But the word hate is here used in contrast. If you look at the parallel, parallel passage in Matthew 10, verse 37, he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. In Genesis 29, verse 30, is another example where Jacob, it says Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. But the next verse says Leah was hated. And so this word is, is used to, to indicate a greater love, or uh, if it's the word hated for, for loving less. So it's a relative. And Jesus uses hyperbole here to, to emphasize the, the contrast, to emphasize the point. There is preferring one above the other. And if we consider the commandments, the great commandments of the Lord, to love God above all, and our neighbor and ourself, that, that means God demands our whole heart and our whole and perfect love. We can understand that with how Jesus said in Luke 16 that no man can serve 
two masters. For either he will hate the one, or he will love the other. Or he, he will hold to the one and despise the other. And so he says you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve both God and the pleasures of this world, the riches of this world. And so here Jesus is contrasting our relationship to himself with our relationships in this world. If we place any of our relationships in this world, even our own life, above God, we are not fulfilling the great commandment of loving God above all. When we prefer something more than God, we're acting in selfish ambition. We're not following God fully. If you think of these invited guests in verse 18, they love their land, they love their oxen, they love their wives more than the invitation to come. The attachment of the things in this world keep them back from the God who gave them the good gifts in this world. And so we cannot serve both. And there will always come a time when we have to make a decision, a choice for one or the other. And so this is why we need to be very careful when we are looking for work or when we are looking for a spouse in our life. Are we placing God first in our choice? Because you'll not be able to serve both if they contradict each other. <clears throat> but love for God can also come across or will also have that true hatred for anything that is opposed to God and His law. It would be a true love for God is also at the same time a true hatred for sin. And in a time of crisis, in a, time, in a trial of our faith, in a moment of decision, we have to choose for one or the other, for God or the things in this world. And to obey God's commandments will at times come at the expense of relationships on this earth. The love of God is greater than any natural love in this world because it has an eternal perspective. And so at times the, the effect or the perception that this total commitment has in following Christ will appear as hatred to our own families. You can think of some cultures where following Christ literally means to leave family where they are rejected, where they're threatened, where they are despised, where they're disowned by their families because of their choice to follow Christ. That's a choice that they have to make knowingly. And our deepest pains come when we are rejected or despised by those who we know and love the most. And so Jesus is saying this cost is real. And He says we must be prepared to face the cost, even in our closest families, <clears throat> excuse me, for the sake of Christ. And there are many who do have their faith tested in this crucible, in this trial of fire. In Luke 12, also, Jesus said in verse 49 that the gospel will bring division. Because those who reject the gospel will also reject those who believe the gospel. 
And the question is, will you continue to hold to Christ even if your closest relations to you reject you? They may interpret that as you hating them. And they might say, well, you don't love me then. Or they might say you're intolerant or whatever they might say. So Jesus does not hide the reality of the cost of following Him because His his kingdom is not of this world. He says the world will hate you because it hated Christ also. But Jesus also says that when you lose relationships here on this earth, you will gain more. Luke 18, verse 29, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents, or brothers, or wife, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. When you're added to the family of God, when you're adopted as children of God, you gain spiritual brothers and sisters all over the world. And that is a family that lasts not just for time, but eternity, eternal life, a family that can never be torn apart again. So this is the cost that Jesus puts in these drastic terms of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But then secondly, he presents us with an ultimatum. In verse 27, verse 27, he says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be or is not able to be my disciple. When we think about the chapters of Luke that we've been studying, and mainly from the end of chapter 9 to verse, or chapter 19, it's, it's that center, center section of Luke really focuses on what it means to follow the Lord Jesus, what it is to follow Him as a disciple. And before and this, this section shows how the Lord Jesus is, is heading to Jerusalem that one last time to be crucified. And before he starts there in, in, nine, in Luke 9, verse 23, he said this to his disciples. In Luke 9, verse 23, he says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And there he laid out the three instructions. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so the ultimatum that Jesus here gives is that if we don't do that, we're not able to be his disciples. And in this passage, we see how the cross is described. It's described as that pain even that we have to bear in this life caused by even divisions and separations between our closest relatives and the loss of our own life, our own reputation, all for the sake of of Christ and the gospel. When you think of the cross, the cross is a vivid picture of the cost of following Jesus. Because a person who is being who would be executed had to carry a heavy wooden cross to the place where he would be crucified on it where he'd be put to death. And once you pick up that cross and head to that place, there's no turning back. And this is a cross that 
is the picture to you, or picture to show the Christian life. We're carrying the cross with one destination. And so the cross here needs, it shows the need for a willing heart. Because the Lord Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, there needs to be a willing heart. The, the invited guests were invited to this banquet supper, but they had all sorts of lame excuses because they were not willing to come. But here we also see that, as the canons of Dort say, that God does not deal with us as stocks and blocks, as people who don't have a will or an ability. But God has given us a will and an intellect that God also bends and forms with His Holy Spirit to, to give that new life and that new will to obey Him. But in the end of chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus accused the people that they were not willing to come to Him. The natural heart is not willing. It's not willing, but God will have a willing people in the day of His power. God informs our hearts and our minds by His Word and by His, His Spirit. He gives that life both to will and to do of His good pleasure, it says. And so these also are, are, are the signs, the marks of that spiritual life, of that regeneration of that true faith in the heart when there's a, a willingness to follow Christ despite this cost. And this is what he's getting to, uh, to these people that are following him. He says, why are you following me? Is it true faith? Or is it only to see what you can benefit from Christ? And so the willing heart is like that merchant who has seen in Christ the, the riches above all riches and he goes to sell everything he has to, to gain that pearl of great price. You're willing to part with everything on this earth because you realize it's not sufficient for eternal life. Taking up the cross is, to the natural heart and mind, a detestable thing. It's, it's vile and vulgar in our thoughts to human reasoning. And it doesn't make sense unless you have an eternal perspective to know that this world is perishing, that we are perishing, except we are born again, saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this cross shows the need for a willing heart, because if there is no willing heart, then as the people who are following Jesus also will not persevere. There came a time when they said, this is too hard for us, and they turned away. Evidence of no saving faith. But then also, the cross is a picture of self-denial. To bear your cross means to deny yourself, even to death. It requires self-denial, sacrifice, and hardship. To disregard, a disregard for our own will, for our own desires, our own rights in submission to God's will. Because a person heading to the hill where he'd be crucified to his execution, he had no more rights left. He was condemned to die. And so the cross is really a sign of rejection, of hatred, and ultimate death. And it's a curse to bear. Rejected and hated by this world, just like Jesus was rejected and hated and condemned to death by the people. 
And the cross is a painful and a humiliating way to die. And the cost of discipleship in many ways is painful and humiliating and self-denying. The cost that we saw earlier of division in family members is extremely painful. And yet it must not hinder us to love God above all. And here we see that we need that supernatural grace of God as His Holy Spirit to be able to bear that cross. Because in our natural heart, we cannot. And this is also why the Lord calls us to this, to distinguish a true faith. And the cost to our personal life is extremely painful. Ultimately, death, and we all need that grace of God to be able to face that last enemy of death because there's a natural fear of death unless that is taken away by the grace and the peace of God, knowing that Jesus Christ has conquered death and hell and Satan. But here in this life, this this self-denial refers especially to the death of our pride, to the death of our selfish ambition, to the death of our self-righteousness, our selfishness and our own reputation, and even our own honor in this world. In Luke 21, verse 16, Jesus said, You shall be betrayed, both by parents and brethren and kinfolk and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. It's extremely painful when we are rejected, when we are mocked, especially falsely. And yet the Lord Jesus says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So on the one hand, a great burden, on the other hand, a great blessing. And this this self-denial, again, is contrary to our own nature. Because we know how we do everything to preserve ourselves. We try to defend ourselves or justify ourselves, but we're called to deny ourselves because God is our judge. He will repay. Your honor and your reputation is with God alone. We see it in ourselves and we see it in our children how we try to defend our reputation. If somebody falsely accuses us, we, we lash back or we hit back. We want to dominate. We want to be seen as honorable. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God the Father gives good gifts both to the good and to the evil in this world. And he calls those, calls his children to do good even to those who hate him and them. So we're called to bear the cross of self-denial. And also the cross is a picture of the daily and continuing journey to the end. That a cross was carried all the way to the end of the journey, to the place of execution. They could not choose to stop halfway and, and take a break and, so they could enjoy some leisure time. 
It was carried for one purpose and one purpose only. That was to continue bearing it until they came to the place of execution. And in a similar manner, Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily until we reach our destination. And in a way, it's a comfort too, knowing that in this life, things in that sense won't improve. But God has a greater purpose. Carrying a cross is hard work. It's tiring, it's painful, but we must persevere to the end. In this world you shall have tribulation, Jesus said, but be of good courage, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And you know that you're not alone. The Bible is full of examples, Hebrews especially. Others were torches, it said, not accepting deliverance so that they might obtain a better resurrection. So others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and a change and imprisonment. They were stoned and sawn in two and tempted. They were slain with a sword. They were wandering about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and tormented, of whom this world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Why does the Lord Jesus give such an ultimatum? Especially to the large crowd that was following him. Well, the cross gives a picture of those following Christ as a true Christian. Because whoever does not bear his cross and come after Jesus is not able to be his disciple. And it was shown later how many of them turned away. And now, too, many people turn away from Christ after following for a short while. And so he gives us ultimatum. He draws his line in the sand, so to speak, distinguishing his true disciples from professors of religion or from false believers. And it's by bearing your cross daily where you learn to know the love of God in your soul and your love for God that he has given. To take up the cross is to bear reproach for Christ's sake. And it is only when we do it for His sake that we can bear the reproach that comes against us. He says in Luke 9, 24, whoever will lose his life for my sake. And that losing of life begins in this world being hated for the sake of Christ and His Word. The loss of our reputation in this world. But Christians lose a life here to gain in eternal life, a new life with Christ. Jesus does not come to say this to discourage you, but to show the reality of the spiritual warfare that His people must go through so that you will face this life with the boldness of Christ, knowing that the victory in Him is sure. That even though it is painful, it's not done grudgingly, because you've traded it all in for the pearl of great price. You see this world as nothing, as perishing, as empty. And slowly these, these chains of attachment are being loosened that we still have tying us down to this world so that our love for God and Christ would increase, that our desire for eternal glory would increase when we see the wickedness of this world and the emptiness of this world. And this is a cost, as we said, that is only possible through that true union with Jesus Christ by faith. 
He's the one who suffered for His church. He's the one who paid the ultimate price for His people. Christ Himself came into this world, and He walked this life. He faced the full opposition of this world. But for the joy that was set before Him, Hebrews 12 says, He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And through faith and the power of His Holy Spirit, you also are given that joy to look ahead to what lies ahead in eternity and to despise the shame in this world, knowing that it is nothing, that it is empty, that it is temporal. And so you overcome this present world through faith, he says. And so the Lord does not turn around and say to you, this to you to discourage you, but to encourage you to know that in this world is not your eternal home, that here you are strangers and pilgrims below, as Peter says. He, as we started off, we saw, and as we saw last week, he invites everyone to come to him and says, here is eternal life for the greatest of sinners. Here is eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ with everything provided by God in Christ for a sinner. And the only place to be saved is in Him. And He urges you to come, but at the same time He says, if you come, know that there is a cost. That we are saved in Christ and Christ alone. And we can bring nothing. And we can hold on to nothing in this world. But you'll gain everything in life everlasting to come. And so we must count the cost. And so then next week we'll see the rationale for it and the purpose of it in the remainder of this section. Amen.